Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 96, and I'm recording this in the historic Timberline Lodge on Mount Hood in Oregon. This time we're going to talk about things people forget when winter rolls around, and I have a list of things that you're going to want to check. We're also going to talk about how to deal with those cracks in your windshield that seem inevitable, a product review of some shoes, and a tale from the road about Salem, Massachusetts. Hello everyone, welcome back. Thanks so much for tuning in. As those with astute hearing have already determined, I have reverted back to recording the podcast separate from the video. So as I said, up until episode 100, I'm experimenting with different ways of doing that. And this time, what I'm going to do is have basically the same content in the podcast as in the video version, but I'm going to record them separately. So if you listen to the podcast, you're going to get basically all the content. But if you watch the video, you're going to get that same content, but optimized for video. And if you watch them both, it'll make sense why I'm doing this. For example, when I'm doing the podcast, I will describe things in more detail than I do in the video where I'm simply pointing to something and saying, hey, see this. And hopefully by the time we get to episode 100, I'll have a nice pattern down and everybody will be happy because that's possible. At any rate, I am very happy to be recording this in the Timberline Lodge, which is on Mount Hood in Oregon. And you probably know what this place looks like because it is the hotel that was used for the opening scenes of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And people come here just to do shining tours and all that. But the truth is that the only part of the hotel that was ever used in the movie is the very opening shot right after he drives up the mountain where you see this big hotel rise up. After that, it was all done on sets and they even built a huge replica of the hotel so that they could film all the scenes and they actually substantially altered some things. I will be talking more about Timberline in this podcast, but uh, it's a great place and I'm just thrilled to be here. And if you hear any weird noises, well, we're in the middle of a snowstorm up on the mountain. There's things falling around and um, it's just kind of cool. Okay, so winter is coming, which is less of a popular phrase now that Game of Thrones isn't on TV anymore, but it is coming. And there's a number of things people forget in regards to van life, especially folks who are from the South and are maybe traveling for the first time. And so I've got a list of things here that you want to check before you head out this winter. Now, I am a big fan of winter van life. I don't think you have to run away from the winter. You don't have to head down south. You don't have to park in quartzite for the entire winter. You certainly can if you want to. But staying in your van in the snow is really kind of cool. And, uh, and and I don't mean that as a pun. <laughs> it can actually be quite cold. No, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to know that you're in your nice warm little cocoon and there's a storm blowing around you. I like it and I can understand why people wouldn't. But if you want to try that kind of thing, make sure that you take care of the following things that I'm going to list right now. First on the list, for those of you using diesel heaters or folks who have diesel sprinters or whatever 
vehicle. You have diesel ProMasters. If you are using diesel in any way, shape, or form, know that there are different formulations of diesel. There's off-road diesel. There's on-road diesel. That's mostly about tax. There's different levels of sulfur. But what I'm talking about is winter blend versus summer blend. Now, you won't even see this labeled on the pumps most of the time, but they use a different blend of diesel in the summer than they do in the winter. And why they do this is because the summer blend is basically cheaper to make, but it doesn't like to get below freezing. When it gets below freezing, it gels up and it actually becomes unpumpable. And this has been a problem for truckers for years to fill up 400 gallons of diesel fuel in southern Texas and then drive straight north. And by the time they're in the Dakotas, their fuel has solidified and they're stuck. For van people, we don't store fuel like that. You know, we're not dealing with hundreds of gallons of fuel. But it can be a problem with your diesel heaters because, hey, maybe you had half a tank of diesel fuel left over from last winter and you just decided to leave it there. Well, it may gel, especially if you got that diesel down south. So diesel gelling is a thing. If you're going to keep diesel for a long time, make sure you get some diesel stabilizer. Not only does it prevent it from gelling in cold temperatures, it prevents algae from growing in it, which is another problem. And just be aware that you need to make sure your diesel is fresh and formulated for the winter. Okay, another important one is, well, obviously, water freezes. Hello, this is how it works. And if you spent your whole life in Florida, that might be a foreign concept to you, but it's something you're going to deal with if you head north, especially in the winter. And there are places people forget like most people remember, oh, I've got this big water tank. I need to deal with that. But people often forget their toilets. If you have a toilet in your van that flushes in any way, well, make sure you winterize that. And the best way to winterize it is with that pink RV antifreeze that is made out of propylene glycol. Propylene, not ethylene, propylene glycol. That's the stuff that's actually safe to drink and it will protect anything that has water in it. It basically forces the water out with this other chemical and then you flush it in the spring. But there's a great trick for those of you with cassette toilets. You can continue using your cassette toilets in freezing temperatures if you fill the tank, the freshwater tank, either with propylene glycol or, and I've done this myself, it works fine, washer fluid. That's right, if you get any cheap washer fluid, as long as it's rated for winter temperatures, it's fine for flushing your toilet. You don't actually have to have fresh water in there, you just need a liquid that will let you flush, and this works just fine. And then when spring comes, if you still have some of this liquid in there, you just keep using it, it's not a big deal. And at as low as a buck 25 a gallon, it's a great way to go, and it won't harm your seals or anything like that. Another thing people forget about is food. Do you know what happens when a can of food freezes? <laughs> well, it often explodes. And while I like to keep a, basically a larder of food in my van at all times so that no matter what, I've got some food, some of that food you wanna take out in the winter or make sure it's constantly heated because yeah, it'll explode. And this is especially true for sodas and beer and things like that, carbonated beverages. Boy, everybody in the North probably has a story about that can of Coke they left in their car one cold winter's night. But folks coming up from the South, you may not have ever had that experience. And just imagine if your can of Coke was a hand grenade and it went off. That's kind of what it's like. It's no fun. 
Another thing people run into a lot in the winter is that their tire pressure monitor light will come on suddenly. Well, this is just basic physics. Heat increases pressure, cold decreases pressure. So your tires, when they get cold, the pressure goes down and it sets those sensors off. So basically every fall, you have to pump up the tires a little bit. And if you're not used to driving in the winter, you might think there's something wrong with your tires, whatever. No, it's not, it's just the cold. So when you enter the cold environment, go ahead and pump up your tires just a little bit. You don't have to go crazy because as they heat up, that pressure will increase, but you just wanna fill them up enough to get past that point at which the tire pressure monitor comes on. Another important thing to remember is that batteries are weaker when it's cold. This is especially true of lead-acid batteries. They just can't produce as much power when it's cold, so you have to be very conscious of your battery usage. And for those of you with lithium batteries, there is a tragic thing with lithium batteries that they can't be charged below freezing. You can use them below freezing, that's fine. But if the cells are below freezing and you try to charge them, they can be permanently damaged. In an upcoming episode, I'm gonna talk about a way to heat your batteries in the winter. But for now, just know that you shouldn't charge your batteries until they are at the proper temperature. And the better batteries will have a BMS that will automatically prevent you from doing this. But if you bought a cheaper battery, like I did, like an Ampere Time or a Chins or something like that, they won't have that. They will totally let you destroy your batteries by charging them with the solar panels on a cold day. So definitely something to be aware of. If you are someone who just insulated your van and you thought maybe you missed some spaces, the winter is a great time to find that out. Let your van cool off and then heat it up. And then take one of those laser thermometers, you know, the kind that look like little guns, and then go around your van and you go around the outside of your van actually, and you can find the warm spots on the outside of the van. That'll tell you where you need to add more insulation. It's a, it's a very easy way to see what you need to do. And again, don't stress out too much over insulation. You can easily overcome a lack of insulation with more heat in the winter. Another thing people find out tragically sometimes, is that plastics get brittle in the winter. And so while the automotive plastics in your van, the ones that came with your van, are probably going to be fine, if you have done anything else with plastics in your van, such as maybe put in a water container that wasn't designed for that use or something like that, those things can be very, very brittle in the cold. And if you accidentally hit them, they're likely to crack. So be very careful of plastics in the cold. They act very differently. Another thing people do, and I see this all the time, is, hey, it's cold, right? And you're producing heat, and you don't want that heat to escape. So you shut all the windows, and you close all the vents, and then you've created a big problem because you're filling your van with moisture. This is especially true if you're using like a buddy heater kind of heater because those things just pump moisture in there. But even if you have a, a dry heat heater, like a diesel heater, it doesn't matter. You're still pumping moisture in there because you're breathing. You are breathing out a lot of moisture. And if you ever cook in your van, like you know, make spaghetti or boil water, all that steam is going in there too. And the only way to get that water out is to ventilate. And where it's cold, and there's going to be some place that's cold in your van, no matter how well you insulate, that moisture is going to condense there, and then it's going to pool somewhere, and you can have serious problems with mold. So absolutely be sure to ventilate your van in the winter. It is super important. 
Another thing people find out is that your van will not be a uniform temperature. It will be much colder on the floor than it will be by the ceiling. And while this is true in houses too, we don't notice it as much because there's more space. It's a very common thing in the winter to be sitting in your van and have your feet be cold and your head too hot. <laughs> this is, it's just a reality of heating these little tiny spaces. So fans are a good thing. If you can blow that air around, that's a good thing. And for those fancy folks out there, heated floors do help prevent this. But that requires an expensive build and one that is technically complex and probably not something I'm ever going to tackle. And lastly, and I say this a lot, make sure you have a financial buffer in the winter. Because if you break down in the winter, you are seriously in trouble. In the summer, if you break down, you could bring a tent or something and just stay in your tent for a few days or whatever. In the winter, no. You need to go stay in a hotel or stay with a friend. You may need to travel. Please don't travel in the winter or really at any time without a financial buffer that'll get you through a week without your van because it can happen very easily and you should prepare for it ahead of time. And boy, will you thank yourself later for doing that. And heck, if you never need that buffer, great. <laughs> You're never going to be sad to have more money in your bank account. So there's some thoughts for winter. There are many, many more thoughts. If you have some you'd like to share with me, let me know. I'll be happy to put them up on the website or to include them in a future episode. But be careful out there. Don't take unnecessary risks, but take those necessary risks. The winter is a great place to be in a van. Tech Talk. So if you've driven for any length of time, you have probably gotten a crack in your windshield. It seems inevitable. And it's basically because of the way vehicles are designed. The, the windshield sticks up. That's where rocks are going to hang out if they've been kicked up in the air. In most cars, the windshield is the big thing that is pushing against the wind. So, of course, that's where flying rocks are going to hit most often. Now, you can't completely avoid rocks hitting your windshield. Sure, you can avoid driving behind trucks. You can leave a lot of space between you and the car in front of you. You can try all those things. But sometimes rocks come from across the other side of the road. Sometimes they're just bouncing from a truck that's way in front of you. There's only so much you can do. And don't get too upset about it. It's going to happen. It's just part of owning a vehicle and driving a lot. You're driving down the road. You hear and you're like, uh-oh, what happens? And then you find that crack in your windshield. Well, what do you do? The best thing is to have comprehensive insurance on your vehicle because that will cover your windshield. And in nearly all cases, it will be free to fix dings. So if you just have a chip, you simply need to pull into a glass place and they can fix it in half an hour and it's free. That's in most cases. You have to check with your insurance and the situation, etc. That is the best thing you can do. But hey, I know what you guys are doing. You're way out in the middle of nowhere. You just got a rock chip. You don't want to interrupt your trip. What do you do? Okay, well, there are some things you can do yourself. First thing, and just, just a piece of general information, you don't want any water to get in those chips. You want to try to avoid getting water in there. So that means you don't want to put on your windshield washer fluid or anything like that. Until you repair it, try to keep water out of that chip. Okay, then the second best thing you can do other than taking it to a professional is to buy a windshield repair kit and just kind of keep it in the van for that moment when you know this is going to happen. 
these kits are made out of a resin and they have a suction device that, well, it's actually a pressure device, but it pushes the resin into the crack and then lets it harden. And then you kind of shave it off with a razor blade. And that is a very solid permanent repair. But if you're not as prepared as that and you just need to fix it right away, super glue can work in a pinch. Now, super glue is tricky stuff to work with, but the basic idea is you want to clean the area without getting any water in the crack and then gently fill it up with super glue. And I recommend you using a gel type of super glue for this, not necessarily one of those super liquidy ones. And it'll dry very quickly. That's the nature of super glue. And then you can kind of trim it with a razor blade so that it won't create a rough spot on your windshield. Because remember, your windshield wipers are going over this spot. And if you have a rough spot, it's going to make the wipers not work as well. That's the third best thing you can do other than using one of those kits or taking it to a professional. Now, how safe is it to drive with a broken windshield? Any chip, any crack, any scratch can become a very large crack pretty quickly because windshields are made a little bit funny. They're two layers of tempered glass with a layer of plastic in the middle. That's what gives them the strength and safety so that the rock that just hit your windshield doesn't come through the windshield and hit you in the head. So because of that, they're built a little funny and they're thermally sensitive. So they expand and contract with temperatures more than you might think. So if you have a little crack and let's say it's fine for a few days and then you drive down south and the windshield gets hot, that crack can spread very quickly or vice versa. You take it up someplace cold and you'll find that that crack will spread. The good news is a cracked windshield is not going to collapse on you. It's not going to shatter. It's just as safe as it ever was. The cracks are more of an annoyance, but they can also be a distraction. They can mess up your wipers. You generally don't want to have them. And in some jurisdictions, it's illegal to drive with a crack of a certain size. So if this happens to you, don't panic. Everything's fine. But a cracked windshield, a chipped windshield should be repaired as soon as possible, preferably by a professional. If not, using one of the kits made especially for it, or, hey, super glue in a pinch. Tales from the road. So by request, I'm uh, telling this, and this is kind of going to turn into a Halloween episode pretty quickly here. Uh, I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts. Yes, that's Salem, the witch city founded in 1626. A uh, very interesting place to grow up. Salem itself was kind of like one of those Fisher-Price City toys. It had everything. Like, it had city, it had farms, it had woods, it had the ocean, it had rivers. Eh, not so much mountains, but we had some hills. And uh, it was like a little bit of everything. And I, I really enjoyed being part of someplace that was so historic. I grew up right at the edge of Gallows Hill, which for years was thought to be the place where the quote-unquote witches were hanged. Uh, in fact, they just recently discovered that it was just on the other side of Gallows Hill, a place called Proctor's Ledge, which overlooks a CVS, if you can believe it. But that aside, it was interesting growing up in a place that now, when I look back at it, was kind of bizarre. For example... I swear to you, everything I'm about to tell you is true. I'm not making jokes. This is all true. We did not have a dairy queen in Salem. We had a dairy witch. Uh, 
and their sign was a giant ice cream cone with a ladder on it and a traditional comical witch climbing up the ladder. The Salem Evening News newspaper, the masthead, was a witch flying across the moon. The mascot of the Salem High School football team, well, yes, it was a witch. In fact, the football team was the Salem Witches. Even the police department's badges had witches on them. And my neighborhood was called Witchcraft Heights. I went to Witchcraft Heights Elementary School. And when I tell people that now, they think I went to some sort of Hogwarts or something where we were being taught witchcraft in the school. Uh, and I assure you that while our colors were actually orange and black, and that's what our gym uniforms looked like, the curriculum was pretty standard. <laughs> there was no witchcraft being taught at Witchcraft Heights Elementary School. My neighborhood, though, being called Witchcraft Heights, the streets were named things like which way, as in which way, not which way, Cauldron Court, Crescent Circle, Puritan Road. They all had these vaguely witch-like names. And some people went all out with this. Uh, there were a few houses that were painted orange and black. A lot of people owned black cats. And Halloween... Well, I didn't know it at the time, but Halloween in Salem was a pretty big deal. I didn't realize that not everyone did Halloween the way we did. We would, uh, you know, get dressed and do trick-or-treat and just hit maybe 80 houses in a night, come back with a pillowcase absolutely chock full of candy. But I grew up there in the 70s, and back then... Despite everything I just said, Salem was trying to get away from that rather tragic period in our history. I mean, let's remember here, there weren't actually any witches. What there were were undesirables in the community, mostly women, being persecuted by the government and their neighbors and their church, which were all the same thing at the time. It's not something to be celebrated. And in fact, Salem, Massachusetts isn't where most of it happened. Salem, which was Salem Town back then, was actually where the trials took place. But most of these people lived in what was called Salem Farms or Salem Village, which today you can find as, I'm going to use the local pronunciation here, Peabody, Beverly, Danvers, and Andover. Those were some of the communities where these people came from. But if you hear Andover, Massachusetts, not using the accent, you don't think of witchcraft, and yet that's where a large majority of the accused lived. Now, enter the 80s. I left Salem in probably 1986. That was when Haunted Happenings first started. And now Salem has gone Halloween crazy. The entire town has devoted itself to Halloween. It, basically, you can't get there in October. There's no place to park. There aren't very many hotels to begin with. They're all booked up. And it's just a free-for-all of celebrations of the occult and white witchcraft and Wicca and all our modern interpretations of witchcraft, sort of celebrating the idea of witchcraft. And while there is some attention paid to the tragedy that was the origin of these things, I would argue it's not enough. 
And it's interesting to me that growing up when I did, Salem was actually trying to downplay all that stuff. Salem was a hugely important seaport, and a lot of America's first things happened in Salem, like the first demonstration of the telephone. Well, that happened in Salem. The first elephant ever in the United States, also in Salem. The first millionaire, the first candy company. I mean, there's a whole big long list of first things that happened in Salem, and that's the stuff we focused on. So I I still love Salem. In fact, I'm organizing a trip to Salem next year, which I will talk more about. And hopefully some of you folks can show up in your vans because there is an awesome place in Salem to stay in your van. I'll talk about that in the future. I feel privileged to have grown up in Salem. I think it was a really interesting place and I have a, a big fondness for it. But I am a little bit concerned about how we have turned a tragedy into a celebration. And while that actually doesn't sound like a bad thing, It's really important to remember what happened here so that it doesn't happen again, even though, well, it kind of already has. Product review. This is a rather unusual product review, but I've been wearing these shoes in my van and in my travels, and I've decided that these things are great and I need to talk about them. So these are from Duluth Trading Company and they're called Wild Boar Leather Mocks. That's M-O-C-S, short for moccasins, meaning that they don't have any ties or straps or anything. Now, I don't know if they make a women's version. I, uh, I'm pretty sure they do, but it isn't these shoes specifically that I wanna talk about. It's these style of shoes. We don't have a lot of space in vans. We need things to do more than one thing. And these shoes are that. They can be light hiking shoes. I have worn these things hiking quite a few times. Even though they don't have any laces, I mean, they're basically just a slip-on shoe. And they're just a big black piece of leather, honestly. They're, They're very little styling. But they really stay on your feet well. And they have got really grippy soles. And they're very thick soles. So you can absolutely do light hiking with them, but they also slip right on and off. So they're great for around the campsite. You know, you get in your van, you slip your shoes off, you need to run out of the van quickly, you slip your shoes on, they're great for that too. Another thing they're good for is those times when you're in a town and oh, you've got an old friend and they wanna take you out to dinner and they want to take you someplace that's just a little bit fancy. I mean, fancy in the way that you're gonna like pick that pair of jeans that doesn't have the bacon grease all over them and maybe a shirt that doesn't like smell like you've been wearing it for four days, you know, that kind of fancy. You know, we're talking van life fancy here. These shoes, if you wear them with a pair of unripped jeans and a nice shirt, you can actually get away with wearing them fancier places than you could say a pair of sneakers or hiking boots. So I like that aspect too, especially the black ones because, well, they're like stealth shoes. They're ignorable. They're not going to attract attention and nobody's going to say, wow, those are nice shoes you got there. But nobody's also going to say, you know, why are you wearing those ugly shoes here? This style of shoe, a high quality, really well-built slip-on shoe, I think is ideal for van life. They're lightweight enough that you can drive with them and they're heavy enough that you can do some even winter weather stuff with them. Like I'm here at Timberline right now, it is snowing like crazy and I have no problem wearing these out in the slush. So I'll have a link in the show notes, but remember it's not this specific shoe I'm recommending. These are $85 by the way. It is the style of shoe. You can get them wherever you like shoes. I just happen to have gotten them at Duluth Trading Company. So it's the Men's Wild Boar Leather Mock. A place to visit. Well, 
shockingly, <laughs> I'm going to tell you to come visit the Timberline Lodge because I'm sitting in it right now. This place is absolutely gorgeous and historic. It was built in 1937 by the WPA, which was a program that the FDR administration put forward to help combat the depression. And they hired local artisans and carpenters and construction workers to build this amazing ski lodge on the slope of Mount Hood. It is called the Timberline for a very specific reason. At 6,000 feet, it is at the timberline of the mountain. There really aren't too many trees above this point. And by the way, 6,000 feet is just a little bit more than halfway up Mount Hood. This is a serious mountain. Now, this place was built to be a ski resort, and in fact it is. It is the only ski resort in the U.S. that can operate 12 months a year. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always open 12 months a year. Of course, the snow matters. But if there's snow, they will be open 12 months a year. As it happens right now, even though it's snowing like crazy outside, they're not open for skiing yet. But they have modern lifts and a modern ski lodge building, but they also have this old historic lodge that is just wonderful. Now, yes, this is the lodge from the movie The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick movie. But there is nothing inside that has anything to do with the movie. The inside is totally different. Basically, Kubrick took the outside of this lodge and took the inside of a lodge at Yosemite and combined them to make his fantastical overlook. And if you're wondering why I haven't mentioned Stephen King here, it's because his building was actually the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, which has nothing to do with any of these. So which lodge was The Shining? Well, you can pick any one of the three, depending on your perspective. But this one is the iconic building that everyone will associate with the Overlook. And it is unbelievable. Everything is built large and strong and out of wrought iron and the most amazingly huge wood beams you have ever seen. There are beams in this building that are holding up the main roof that are I, I can't even guess how big they are, but it would probably take five people with their arms stretched to wrap around it. They're so big. There is no way they could build anything like this today. There's, the trees simply don't exist. Everywhere you look, there's some little hand-carved thing or wrought iron thing. And the scale is, is really something to appreciate. The andirons in the main fireplaces, of which there are many, are made out of railroad tracks that have been bent into spirals. It's amazing. This is one of these places that you absolutely need to look at pictures. I cannot describe this with any justice, but if you are ever in Oregon, especially even if you're near Portland, this isn't that far away. It's well worth it to take a trip up here. Maybe have dinner in the dining room when it's not COVID times, things are weird now, or have a drink at the Ram's Head Bar or at the Blue Ox when it's open, which is during the heavy season, and just experience this place and learn a little bit about its history. Take a look at some pictures. I'll have links in the show notes of, and the video version of this podcast. I'm going to have a whole bunch of video. But wow, uh, I really love it here. It's, it's just a nice little retreat. And I'm currently sitting in my hotel room, my lodge room, in front of a massive fireplace made of stone with hand wrought iron grating, a ram's head poker, and a giant stack of wood that they bring in for me every day. I mean, why would I ever leave? They even give me coffee. <laughs> I mean, it's like they said, Jeff, this is your room. You're never leaving. So 
Timberland Lodge, absolutely wonderful place to stay. No, it's not cheap. You can spend 200 to 300 bucks a night to stay here. And I have seen some vans in the parking lot, but I'm not going to suggest that you spend the night in the parking lot here, although you could probably get away with it for one night. I can tell you that they didn't ask me to register my vehicle when I checked in. So links in the show notes, check this place out. And uh, yeah, they have shining stuff here, but the shining isn't really the point. This is a unique piece of American history that you can actually stay in and get the full experience of. Well, thank you for listening to this episode 96. Please let me know if this format works better than I have been doing in the last couple weeks. It should at least sound a lot better. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Aristotle. To appreciate the beauty of a snowflake, it is necessary to stand out in the cold.